first of all, let's note the obvious. Genesis 26 sounds conspicuously similar to events already recorded in previous chapters in Genesis. So similar, in fact, that some scholars have suggested that it's simply a duplicate account substituting Isaac's name for Abraham's name. And that this was included in the Genesis narrative by an editor at a later date. And as we think along those lines, consider not only the events themselves being similar, but even the names of the people involved. Abimelech and Phicol, who are the men that Isaac deals with at the end of the chapter, are the exact same names as those given to men Abraham dealt with in Genesis chapter 20. After having lied to Abimelech, that his wife was his sister. In Genesis chapter 20, Abraham lies to Abimelech that his wife is his sister. And then in Genesis chapter 21, pardon me, Abraham deals with Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army. So that's Genesis 20 and 21. Genesis 26, Isaac lies to Abimelech that his wife is his sister and then deals with Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army. These two events are separated by probably around 75 years. So are these the same men? Perhaps Abimelech and Phicol were 25 or 30 when Abraham dealt with them and now they're 100 or 105. As we know, people in this day and age live longer, so it's not outside the realm of possibility. Or are these honorific titles instead of proper names? So that Abimelech is actually what any king would be called and Phicol is actually what any commander of the army would be called. In favor of this line of argumentation, we should consider that the king of Gath, which is in the same geographical region as the events unfolding here, hundreds of years later in David's time, was called Abimelech also. And you can read, uh, you can reference the title of Psalm 34 uh, to fact check that. Whatever the case with Abimelech and Phicol and the similarities, or whatever the case with Abimelech and Phicol, the similarities between Genesis chapter 20 and 21 and then Genesis chapter 26 are striking. The similarities between Abraham's dealings with Abimelech and subsequent dealings with Abimelech and Phicol, and then Isaac's dealings with Abimelech, and Isaac's dealings with Abimelech and Phicol are striking. It's hard, in fact, to find much that's different other than the fact that Isaac tells a bigger lie because Rebecca's not even his half-sister the way that Sarai was Abraham's half-sister. So, these similarities are the basis for the assertion by some scholars that this is simply a duplicate account, that there were two accounts floating around in the ancient Near East, that some people were mixed up, and maybe these events happened with Isaac, and someone got mixed up and wrote them with Abraham and Sarai's name in them, 
or these events happened with Abraham and Sarai and someone else got mixed up and wrote Isaac and Rebecca's name but somewhere along the line someone made an error but there was these two stories floating around and then at a later date someone came and threw them together in the Genesis narrative some scholars assert this based on the shocking level of similarity between Genesis 20 and 21 and Genesis 26. However, it's clear that the author of Genesis, the author of Genesis 26, particularly, intends for us to understand these events as distinct historical events, as not being the same events as transpired back in chapters 20 and 21. In verse 1, he tells us explicitly that the famine recorded here was another one besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And in verse 18, we're told that Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father. Then twice, in fact, in this narrative, God appears and mentions to Isaac, Abraham, his father. Verses 3 and 23. So clearly this is not an accidental inclusion of the same events recorded two different ways with by people who got the details mixed up. Clearly these are distinct historical events. And so we can't accept such a simplistic explanation as the liberal scholars have provided that ancient writers got Abraham and Isaac mixed up and wrote the same story down twice. In fact, it's almost insulting for them to insinuate that that could have happened. Were people really so dumb that they just slapped together two stories that are so obviously similar without realizing this? It's like reading a piece of poetry and seeing a refrain and being like, the author already said that. He accidentally wrote it down again. When we see repetition in a piece of literature, it's not there because the author forgot that he already wrote it down and wrote it down again. It's not there because somebody just got mixed up and first they wrote it down and thought it was Abraham and then a few chapters later they said, oh, actually it was Isaac and then wrote it down again. That's not the nature of literature. When we see repetition in literature and when we consider the fact that human error, positing human error as a component of the scriptures that we have is out of bounds for us based on what the scripture says of itself elsewhere. When we think about the doctrine of the inspiration of scripture, the suggestion that these are just duplicate accounts recorded by accident and slapped together are out of bounds for us. We have to understand that the Holy Spirit, through Moses, the author of Genesis, recorded the events that happened in Abraham's life in Genesis 20 and 21 and the events that happened in Isaac's life in 26 purposefully in strikingly similar ways. So the question is, 
Why? Does he want me, the Holy Spirit, does he want me to preach the same sermon to you that I preached in Genesis 20 and talk about the despicable action of Isaac in lying to Abimelech and how cowardly it was and the fear of man and do, are we to revisit that again and say the same thing and just substitute Isaac's name for Abraham's? Or are we to talk about common grace again and, and the way that God makes even Abraham's enemies to be at peace with him? So Abraham plants a tree and digs a well and puts some roots down as he's a pilgrim in the foreign land. Are we just to revisit those sermons again and just substitute Isaac's name for Abraham's? Why the repetition? Why does the Holy Spirit repeat things so strikingly, in so strikingly similar a fashion? It's a literary technique to get the focus off Isaac himself. Nothing to see here. Nothing we haven't seen before. There's nothing particularly noteworthy in this passage about Isaac. I mean, we could talk about how the sins that we see replicated, that we see in our parents are often replicated in our lives. That the way that our parents interact with the world is often the way that we interact with the world. That, that there are habits and patterns and attitudes and ways of thinking in our family of origin that affect us moving forward. And so we see Isaac doing the same thing as Abraham. We could talk about that. But really what's going on here is that we're seeing that there's nothing really new going on at the level of humanity as we move from one generation to the next. It's the same old, same old. Humanity is the same in Isaac's generation as in Abraham's generation. Nothing to see here. We've been through this. Nothing we haven't seen before. What are we to focus on then? in Genesis chapter 26? The answer to that question is God. God's dealings with Isaac. And we're to notice specifically that God's dealings with Isaac are not grounded in any uniqueness on Isaac's part or any worthiness or unworthiness on Isaac's part. God's dealings with Isaac are grounded rather in the covenant that God made with Abraham. In other words, what we see in Genesis chapter 26 is that what's so special about Genesis chapter 26 is not who Isaac is, but how God will deal with Abraham's covenant children. And that's why there's the similarity there. It's to keep all the variables the same so that what is highlighted is God's actions in dealing with the next generation. So first, we need to remember as we consider God's dealings with Isaac that God made promises to Abraham concerning two different types of children. There are going to be two different nations coming from Abraham. 
besides, of course, the nation that God made from Ishmael and his seed, and the nations that God made from the sons of Keturah, Abraham's other wife. There are two particular nations that God has in view to, to deal with in a special way, to deal with in a particularly benevolent way. Two different nations coming from Abraham. The natural children of Abraham as traced through Isaac, who become eventually the nation of Israel. And the spiritual children of Abraham, not necessarily descended from him biologically, though perhaps so, but whether Jews or Gentiles made into a cohesive group by faith in Abraham's distant offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the children of Israel are Abraham's children in a very real way. And I, a Gentile, am Abraham's child in a very real way. Believer, you are Abraham's child, though Gentiles, in a very real way. And yet, we Gentiles are Abraham's children in a distinct way from those who are Abraham's biological children traced through Israel. Genesis, or pardon me, Galatians chapter 4 speaks of two covenants that can trace their roots back to Abraham. To this first nation composed of Abraham's natural children traced through Isaac and then through Jacob or Israel. God made certain promises and entered into a certain covenant. To the second nation composed of those who have faith in Abraham's distant seed, God made other promises and entered into a different covenant. But to Isaac, who is both the spiritual seed of Abraham, note his worship in Genesis chapter 26 and verse 25. To Isaac, who is both the spiritual seed of Abraham and the natural seed of Abraham, and who is living before these nations are clearly distinguished from one another, the promises are commingled. So there are distinct promises made to Abraham's natural seed, distinct promises made to Abraham's spiritual seed, but to Isaac and to Jacob after him, until these nations are clearly distinguished from one another, before these covenants are clearly distinguished from one another, the promises are commingled. So bear this in mind as we, as what God did for Isaac is not necessarily directly applicable to us as we are Abraham's spiritual seed belonging to that second nation and not Abraham's natural seed belonging to that first nation. Let's examine now then God's dealings with Abraham's children. Seen in God's dealings with Abraham's child, Isaac. The first thing we see is God's faithfulness. Abraham is gone. He's dead. But God does not therefore renege 
on the promises that he made to Abraham. He doesn't therefore say, well, he'll never know, he's dead anyway. God keeps the promises that he made to Abraham. In verses 1 to 5, we read of the Lord appearing to Isaac, saying, do not go down to Egypt, verse 2, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in the land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Abraham is gone, but the promises made to Abraham are not gone. They're active. They're alive. They're being fulfilled by God. God is keeping to Isaac the promises that he made to Abraham. And we see God doing that here in Genesis chapter 26. But as we read through the rest of the Old Testament, we see God not only doing it here in Genesis chapter 26, but doing it all the way through the rest of Old Testament history and into the New Testament, keeping the promises that He made to Abraham. And so Genesis chapter 26 is answering for us this question. Now that Abraham's dead and gone, what will become of the promises that God made to Abraham? Will God go back on them? Will God change his mind now that Abraham's not there to call him on it? And the answer that Genesis 26 gives us is no. God will not renege on the promises. God will not go back on them. God will keep the promises that he made to Abraham. His faithfulness to Isaac is a foretaste of that. We see in the rest of Scripture God being faithful to make a nation of Abraham's natural seed, the nation of Israel, and to give to them the land that He promised to Abraham. God is faithful to the promises that He made to Abraham. We read at the beginning of, or pardon me, at the end of Exodus chapter 2, when Israel is in slavery in Egypt. During those days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. Listen. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. 
God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God's covenant keeping to Isaac, even though Abraham's dead and gone, is a foretaste of what God will do. It's a pattern of what God will do with the promises, even though Abraham is dead and gone. All the promises that God made to Abraham, he will continue to be faithful to. And God keeps the promises that he made to Abraham concerning his spiritual seed. We read in Galatians, in chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Even though Abraham is dead and gone, God will deal with his covenant children according to the promises made to Abraham himself. That's the first thing that we see in Genesis chapter 26. God is faithful to deal with the children of Abraham according to the promises he made to Abraham himself. We see, secondly, that God will deal with Abraham's children in a long-suffering manner. In verses 6 to 11, we read about Isaac's lie to Abimelech. And if you're anything like me, the second time that you read about Abraham lying about his wife, you felt frustrated. And then when you read about Abraham's son telling the exact same lie, you feel even more frustrated. Even for us, as fellow sinners, to read about Abraham lying twice about his wife, and then to read about Abraham's son lying about his wife, father and son both lying about their wives, saying that they're their sisters, even for us as fellow sinners, that's frustrating. But to a holy God, imagine if I can speak anthropopathically, attributing to God the character traits of a man. Imagine the frustration as God witnesses this situation unfold and sees what Isaac is doing. You can almost imagine God throwing up his hands in frustration or rolling his eyes in contempt. Can you believe what Isaac is doing here? But we see God not striking him dead as he would be well within his rights to do, but dealing with Isaac in a long-suffering way. Again, certainly throughout the Old Testament, we see that it's not only Isaac that God deals with in a long-suffering way, but God deals with all of Abraham's natural seed in a long-suffering way. You think about his patience with them in the wilderness, through all the murmurings and all the grumblings. You think about his patience with them as they entered the land and yet 
disobeyed and failed to drive out all the inhabitants that they should have. As the period of the judges came and there were cycles of disobedience and apostasy from the covenant. And then restoration and, and rescue from their enemies. And then it starts all over again. And then the period of the kings and seeing the nation of Israel mix the worship of Yahweh with the worship of the gods around them. You see that the way that God deals with Isaac here in a long-suffering manner establishes a pattern for the way that he will deal with Abraham's natural seed, the nation of Israel. We see that certainly too with the way that God deals with Abraham's spiritual seed. He is long-suffering with us. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. God was not merely long-suffering in His relationship with Isaac. God was not merely long-suffering in His relationship with Israel. God is long-suffering in His relationship with us, His new covenant people. He tells us explicitly through the Apostle John, you are sinners. God is long-suffering with us. Genesis chapter 26 tells us that after Abraham is dead and gone, God is going to be long-suffering toward the children of Abraham. Isaac, and then both his natural seed and Abraham's spiritual seed. Genesis 26 tells us that God is going to be long-suffering with Abraham's children. And then we see here God's benevolence toward Isaac in verses 12 through 22. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Wait. Go back to verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land. Who reaps a hundredfold when there's a famine in the land? He who is blessed by God. That's who? This is not a natural thing that's going on in this section. In that same year, that year when there's a famine in the land, Isaac reaps a hundredfold. Look at verse 2. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. This is God blessing Isaac. In the midst of a famine. This is Isaac's reaping of a hundredfold. There's nothing but the blessing of God upon his crops. What is this? But the benevolence promised to Abraham and his seed. Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham is called out of his homeland. God says to him, I will bless you. 
I will bless you. This is it. God is going to bless Abraham's children. According to his promise to bless. Remember, God is faithful. He's going to be faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham's children. And so he's long-suffering towards Abraham's children. And so he's benevolent towards Abraham's children. You see, again, that this is not just benevolence, however, towards Isaac alone, but this is a pattern of things to come. God is going to continue after Abraham's death to be benevolent towards Abraham's children. He was benevolent towards the nation of Israel. Even as we read from the end of Exodus chapter 20, or pardon me, the end of Exodus chapter 2. God heard the cries of Israel in slavery and remembered his covenant with Abraham. He was benevolent to them. He brought them up out of the land of Egypt. He led them through the wilderness. He brought them into their own land. He lavished every blessing upon them. They had every opportunity for right relationship with God. And listen, right relationship even with the environment, with the land, the physical land. God promised in Deuteronomy in chapter 28 that if they were faithful to the covenant, blessed they would be in the city and blessed they would be in the field. Blessed would be the fruit of their womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of their cattle, the increase of their herds and the young of their flock. Blessed would be their basket and their kneading bowl. Blessed they would be when they come in. Blessed they would be when they go out. The Lord would cause their enemies who rise against them to be defeated before them. They would come out against the Israelites one way and flee before them seven ways. The Lord would command the blessing on them in their barns and in all that they would undertake. The Lord would bless them in the land that he was given them. The peoples of the earth would see that they were called by his name and they would be afraid of them. The Lord would make them abound in prosperity in the fruit of their womb, in the fruit of their livestock, and in the fruit of their ground within the land that the Lord swore to their fathers to give them. The Lord would open to them His good treasury, the heavens, to give them rain on their land in its season and to bless the work of their hands. They would be lenders to many nations but not borrowers. The Lord would make them the head and not the tail. They would go only up and not down if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, their God, which He commanded them. That's benevolence. That covenant had conditions. It came with conditions, and there were blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. But what an opportunity. God was benevolent to the nation of Israel. And so many times when they didn't deserve it, they would cry out to Him, in the midst of their difficulty. And when God could by rights just simply say, well, you've disobeyed, so here's the covenant curses. God dealt with them better than they deserved. Benevolence. 
God dealt benevolently, not only with Isaac in chapter 26, but benevolently with the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And God deals benevolently, not only with Isaac and with the nation of Israel, but God deals benevolently with Abraham's spiritual seed. Those who are Abraham's children because they're in union with Abraham's distant child. God deals benevolently with us. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. You hear me quote it all the time. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I quote it all the time because it's a great, concise, and in you can't argue with this verse that God is benevolent towards us. Because here's the logic. If He already gave us His Son, who is the best thing that He could give us, how is He going to be stingy with us and withhold any other good thing? That's the logic of this verse. The cross tells us that our God is benevolent towards us. He already gave us the best. So why, was, why would He go cheap on us and withhold any other good thing? God is benevolent towards us, Abraham's children. So Genesis chapter 26 teaches us that God is faithful to deal with the children of Abraham according to the promises made to Abraham himself. And therefore, God will be long-suffering toward the children of Abraham. And God will be benevolent toward the children of Abraham. Fourthly, God will be present to the children of Abraham. Genesis 26 teaches us that God will be present to the children of Abraham. Look at verse 3. God appears to Isaac and says, I will be with you. Then look at verse 24. About halfway through. I am with you. And then look at what Abimelech says to Isaac in verse 28. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. God is with Isaac. We see in this chapter that though Abraham is dead and gone, according to the covenant that God made with Abraham, God will be present with Abraham's children. God will be with us. He's with Isaac. And again, this is just establishing a pattern. This is just showing us the first generation after Abraham dies. How is God going to deal with Abraham's children? That's what Genesis 26 is doing. And we see here that God is going to be with Abraham's children. He's with Isaac here in this passage. And again, we see throughout the Old Testament, he's with the nation of Israel. 
He's with them by pillar of fire and cloud as He leads them out of Egypt and through the wilderness. He's with them in the tabernacle and later in the temple. God is with them. And God is with us in the new covenant. What does Jesus say in Matthew 28? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God is present with us by His Holy Spirit. The blessing of Pentecost is not that the Holy Spirit will be active. It's not primarily that the Holy Spirit will be active in our lives. The Holy Spirit was active in the lives of Old Testament saints. The Holy Spirit has been active since He was hovering over the face of the deep way back in Genesis chapter 1. The blessing of Pentecost is primarily this. That God will not be with us external to us as in a theophany as He appeared to Isaac or external to us in a temple or a tabernacle but that God will be present to us by being within us. The promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within you. Romans chapter 8. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Listen, reverse that. Reverse that logic. And that means if you belong to Him, then you have the Spirit of Christ. Let me read that again. The Bible says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. What that means, if you reverse that, is if you belong to Him, then you have the Spirit of Christ. God is with Abraham's children. He's with Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. And that's establishing a pattern for how God will deal with Abraham's children moving forward. He was with that first nation in that first covenant in a particular way. By a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, a tabernacle, a temple. And he's with that second nation. Abraham's spiritual seed in the new covenant in a particular way he dwells within us God is faithful to deal with Abraham's children according to the promises made to Abraham himself and therefore God is long suffering God is benevolent and God is present with Abraham's children and lastly God protects Abraham's children. Verses 26 to 33 describe for us this treaty made between Abimelech and Isaac. Again, as it was in Genesis chapter 21, Abimelech comes to solicit peace 
Genesis 21, it was with Abraham. In Genesis 26, it's with Isaac. But here is this king coming with the commander of his army who could be coming to pick a fight, but who is in fact coming to seek out peace. This is the hand of God first upon Abraham in Genesis chapter 21 and now upon Isaac in Genesis chapter 26 to protect them. Abraham is dead and gone, but God will protect Abraham's children. We see that Isaac is protected here in this chapter. We see throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament that they are protected. Sure, they, they lose battles and wars and many of them are killed. But the nation of Israel is never eradicated. It's never stamped out. And it couldn't be otherwise. Because God had promised that in Abraham's offspring, remember we read from Galatians, not offsprings, but offspring. In a singular offspring of Abraham, down the line, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Because God made that promise to Abraham, He must protect Abraham's natural seed. And we see Him doing that time and again. He rescues Israel. He preserves Israel. He delivers Israel. And we see in the new covenant that He protects us. Jesus says that no one who is given to Him, no one will will snatch them from my hand. We read a prophecy in the Old Testament that no weapon formed against us shall prevail. This doesn't mean that, that you name and claim protection from your employer who wants to fire you or you know from your aunt or uncle who wants to steal some money from you and swindle you or this or that. That's not what that means. But what it does mean is that Nothing, as Romans 8 says, nothing, not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not danger, not sores, not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Nothing is going to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. No one is going to snatch us out of His hand. No weapon formed against us shall prevail. So we see that God, after Abraham is dead and gone, protects Abraham's children. He protects Isaac. He protects Isaac. Again, not Isaac alone, but setting a precedent 
establishing a pattern for how he's going to deal with Abraham's children moving forward. Abraham's dead and gone. What is going to come of the promises? How is God going to deal with Abraham's children? That's what Genesis 26 answers for us. And it teaches us that God is faithful to deal with Abraham's children according to the promises made to Abraham himself. And therefore God will be long-suffering. They will be His people and He will be their God. Though they are stubborn, stiff-necked, sinful people, God will be their God. God will be benevolent to them according to His promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 to bless Him. God will be present with them in the patriarchal age, present with them by theophanies and visions. In the Old Covenant, present with them primarily through the tabernacle and then the temple. And in the New Covenant, present with us by His Spirit. And God will protect Abraham's children. Protects Isaac here. He protects Old Covenant Israel until the seed should come in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And He protects us, His New Covenant people. Genesis 26 teaches us how God will deal with Abraham's children. We can take comfort then those of us who are in Christ Jesus that God will be faithful to fulfill in us and for us those things that he promised concerning Abraham's spiritual seed and for Christ's sake he will be as those who are united to Christ he will bless us in Christ we shall be blessed God will be long suffering to us because Jesus lived and died and rose for us. God will be benevolent to us because Jesus lived and died and rose for us. God will be present to us and with us by His Spirit because Jesus lived and died and rose for us. God will protect us. No weapon formed against us shall prevail because Jesus lived and died and rose for us. Abraham is dead and gone. But the promises that God made to Abraham concerning his spiritual seed, those who would become his children by faith in that distant descendant, those promises are live. Those promises are active. And those promises will be fulfilled in us and to us. Because God is faithful to deal with the children of Abraham according to the promises made to Abraham himself.